you have to admit that was a pretty interesting opening, wasn't it? Uh, that's what happens when uh, we start at the very last second. I was uploading something and everything went crazy. Welcome to the show, everyone. My name is Martin Willis. And uh, I'd like to dedicate this show to a longtime listener. It was back in 2012. I got an email from a gentleman named Lee McDonald um, up in Canada and uh, hilarious, absolutely hilarious. And people may remember him from the chat room. He was in the chat room many years, cracking some wonderful jokes. Uh, he passed away uh, not that long ago this year. Now, Lee uh, was someone that was a firefighter himself. He did a dedication for 9-11, uh, the people of that. And I'm going to play that poem that he wrote, uh, him reciting it at the very end of the show. It's about four minutes and it's quite moving. Um, it's called Calling All Angels, and it's for fallen firefighters, uh, which he was one. He was a captain in the fire department in up near Ontario. Ontario. He himself uh, was in a building that collapsed, and he thought he wasn't going to make it. He told me the details quite a while ago about it, and he was rescued by fellow firefighters. Um, and and just, you know, he, he thought that was the end. Well, unfortunately, this year... Uh, cancer uh, took him and he tried to fight it. I talked to him many times uh, on the phone and uh, through email and chat on Facebook. And he was extremely optimistic that he was going to beat it. He said, the doctors are, are telling me that I'm dying and I don't believe them. I feel so good. And he really had a great attitude. But you may remember him from all the funny stuff that he would put in chat over the years. And uh, for instance, I have this, uh, he wrote me this here, this email here. Hey, Martin. Yeah, well, first of all, he wrote me in the subject line. Fortunately, it doesn't show there. He said he had a new tagline for me instead of keep your eyes to the sky. Uh, I should say, always stare up there. And uh, then he said he was listening tonight. This is back in 2016, but he couldn't get into the chat room. And uh, so he was typing telepathically. So that was a kind of uh, emails and texts and things that I would get from him. Anyway. I hope he rests in peace. He was a great man. So a little bit about the show tonight. We have a great guest, repeat guest. I always love having him on. He's always uh, been very active in the UFO world, Peter Robbins, and I consider him a good friend as well. Uh, he's been traveling all over the place. He's going to talk a little bit about that. Then we're going to talk about something pretty interesting, and it's Wilhelm Reich and uh, what he did and his connection to UFOs, the cloud-busting machine and all that stuff. So, uh, and then also we're going to talk a little bit about what's changed since the last time Peter was on. It's been a while. He was on on my 10th anniversary, but um, it's been a while since he's been a guest on my show. And if you support our show, I want to thank you very much. Anyone can do that. You just go over to Podcast UFO and on the menu bar, you see a support, support us link uh, for two, I think it's $2 or more a month. You can help us out. And this week, the blog by Charles Lear is a photo uh, of a UFO and humanoid. It's probably kind of an iffy photo. It's a pretty good looking photo too. But uh, anyway, check that blog out. That'll be an audio blog as they always are up on YouTube and in the podcast stream. So that is enough for me. I will, I'm very happy to bring in my guest, Peter. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks, Martin. Good to be back with you. Yes, always, Peter. And you just told me you were all over the place, all over the world, actually. <laughs> England and everywhere. 
So, uh, but you're pretty active in the uh, UFO community, and, and I'm so sorry I missed you up in Exeter. It's always uh, fun getting there. It always it was on Labor Day weekend, and I getting out and back to Rockland, Maine, where I live. The traffic, you might as well just park your car somewhere. You know, I mean, it's that yeah. it's really bad. So I didn't come down because of that. But how was it this year? Actually, uh, we went in with a great deal of concern. Like every other event on the planet, um, it's been pushed back for two full years. And it's, I think, my sentimental favorite UFO event on the yearly calendar. I'm honored to be a co-founder of the Exeter, New Hampshire UFO Festival and Conference. And it's distinguished by the fact that once all the bills are paid, speakers receive their honorariums, the hall is covered. Um, every cent of profit goes to children's services of the greater Exeter area, the seacoast area there, and always administered by the Kiwanis, uh, a great local uh, chapter, which uh, also organizes the events in question. And we just didn't know whether people would be returning or returning in numbers. And everybody from the food concession people to those who print up the posters to you know, the bookstore uh, and all the local merchants really were not sure. But I think uh, overall people took a chance and it turned out probably to be the most successful one that we've had so far. I know <laughs> on Saturday they clocked over 600 people who were either in the town hall listening to the talks or taking the tour of the uh, location of the events of the incident at Exeter. I think everybody had a great time as well. Uh, and that was, I think, my last live event for the season right now. But I started the year, like most of us, uh, a little cross-eyed and homebound um, and received an invitation to speak at a UFO conference in Edinburgh, Texas, which really interested me because it's 20 minutes from the border with Mexico. I have never been to that part of Texas and I've never been to Mexico. And I thought how interesting to have a cultural experience of that kind superimposed on the UFO subject. And I wasn't disappointed. It was a, a first rate conference organized by the city. Uh, we were all treated great, uh, had a terrific time and hopefully uh, uh, talk was well received in May. I, well, that was in, yeah, that was in April. Um, in May, I spoke in Hull, England, another conference that had been pushed back for two years and another great success sponsored by the Outer Limits magazine, an online monthly uh, publication. Um, from there, I went on a completely non-UFO related job and some certainly R&R uh, to a small island in the Bahamas for two weeks. Yeah, and, it sounds uh, just terrible. Just terrible. <laughs> I know somebody's got to do it, Martin. That's right. Um, and it was very welcome, although it was in part to document the incredible damage done by a hurricane oh, that yes. hit about three years ago. Right. Yeah. And I, I've never seen anything like it. It was truly a war zone with nature. This mm -hmm. island is a particularly poor one. It is not a tourists in Ireland much, and people are still living amid the carnage. Um, Jeez. 
obviously we're off topic here, but just to say that at one point, a tidal surge swept across a good part of this island and in some cases carried things like containers, you know, half a mile or so. And uh, one thing that stood out for me was a good sized boat, larger than a tugboat sitting in the middle of a farm field, you know, half a mile inland. Anyway, um, crazy. I was in very uh, honored to speak at this year's MUFON Symposium in Denver in August. And again, just a week and a half ago, ending my live world tour for the year uh, in Exeter, New Hampshire. Excellent. Wow. Uh, that's a lot. Now, I wanted to tell you, um, I think I sent you an email, but you, I prob- you were probably off busy. And I don't think I heard back from you. Maybe, maybe again, you were just busy and that happens sometimes. But uh, I spoke to someone that had a sighting so much like your childhood sighting that I was trying to connect you somehow with this person. I don't know. You may I must not have even... missed it. Yeah. Um, I mean, please uh, resend it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try to find it. But it was so uh, almost identical to what you said. Um, the only difference was it was a, a schoolyard type of Ooh. situation. And, uh, but, but, uh, the silver disc, I can't remember exactly what it was, but there were three of them and it just seemed like there was so much that was close to yours that, Mm. um, I wanted to connect you to. And, you know, now that I brought that up, I know you've told it probably 10 times on my show over the years, but if you could, in a nutshell, can you talk about that particular sighting? Because that's really what got you interested in the topic. I know you put it away for years. And uh, popped back into your life, right? Yeah, well, uh, it became the most massive repressed memory of my life. Um, mm-hmm. Although I do have to joke with people that I, if I have other repressed memories, I don't remember them. Um, but this was yes. a yeah. very unambiguous daylight sighting when I was 14 years old, growing up on Long Island, about 30 miles east of Manhattan, um, on a late June morning uh, with one of my sisters, and we observed five silvery white disc-shaped objects coming in at a high rate of speed and stopping over the neighbor's house. And um, they were oval. They were in a very precise V as in Victor type formation. Um, We could make out regular slightly lighter detailing around the edge of each that we could only read as windows when we finally discussed this more than 14 years later. And um, it really overloaded my circuits. I I was a very naive kid growing up in a simpler time. I really didn't have an interest in this subject. I certainly had other interests, but the only connection I had with UFOs was the B-movies that I grew up on and would occasionally see you know, with my friends at our local theater on a Saturday afternoon. But um, it was really too much for me to deal with. And I packed it away quite well. Uh, More than 14 years later, a number of things triggered that memory and it came roaring back like a freight train. It was a very difficult afternoon for me because, you know, you think you're having a major mental episode. How could you possibly repress the most profoundly memorable memory of your life on a certain level, but we can do it. 
And um, I really gave some thought before I telephoned my sister because <clears throat> I did not want to just blurt out what I remembered and have her say yes or no. That would not really constitute confirmation for me. So by the time I called her, I was able to just say I've had a memory return, set the scene, the time of day, the weather, where we were standing in relation to each other. And she just cut me off and said, I know what you're talking about. And we very quickly dispensed with the matter. But that's when my life completely changed. And she said, but there's more. And then went on to describe to me a series of very conscious memories, things she had never forgotten, but never felt compelled to talk about either of what we would now regard as extremely archetypical, classic um, UFO abduction related memories of being lifted into the air, of being walked through a curved metal hallway, of beings that we would now call greys, although that term didn't exist when we first discussed this back in the 1970s. And I thought for a moment, my sister must be going crazy or not telling the truth. But then you catch yourself and say, ah, five seconds ago, it was all right for five disc-shaped objects close enough to see windows on them to be hanging over the Parker's house, but Helen's crazy. And, you know, Martin, people say um, the phrase, my life changed overnight. Mine changed in about 90 seconds. I really was lucky enough as a young person uh, to know what I wanted to do and be good at it. And by the time this memory resurfaced, I was in my late 20s and I was pursuing a career as a painter in lower Manhattan and living that dream. But mm -hmm. this became an obsession. What had happened to my sister and never having heard of, I didn't know there were UFO conferences. I didn't know there were people like me now who did this, you know, it was fairly serious work or it was a land unto itself. But, um, my career train kind of jumped the tracks. And here I am all these years later doing this. Right. Now, I know um, you. your sister was beautiful. She was also a rock star. And unfortunately, we lost her um, over the years. And it was a great, uh, terrible loss. So, um, but I, do I have that right? She was, wasn't she? You do. Um, a Helen musician and, and, and doing pretty well as a musician? Yes. Uh, Helen was a gold and platinum record award-winning singer-songwriter who wrote That's amazing. songs wow. for the Blue Oyster Cult, um, performed with her band for 10 years in the greater New York area, um, a marvelous lyricist and an electrifying performer who was one of the vanguard of that first wave of what became called punk music. I mean, she opened for the Talking Heads, for Iggy, for Ramones. Um, wow. Uh, kind of the pantheon um, and without realizing that you were kind of at this a moment in pop music history I went along for the ride and uh, was <laughs> but she passed in in 2000 uh, following complications from a surgery but her music mm. is out there and she had a lot of courage in being a very public person about this subject back when there weren't a lot of them right is that right? See that see this? Someone just said Helen Wheels. That's it. Is, that was really? her performing name. Yeah. Having yeah. nothing to do, as people occasionally ask, with the Paul McCartney 
song of that name, which came out oh, yes. several years before she was christened Helen Wheels, a pun on the fact that she could be Hell on Wheels by uh, <laughs> the lead singer of the one of the other original whole punk vanguard, vanguard bands, the Dictators. Handsome Dick Manitoba gave her that name and it stuck. Ah, how about that? Um, I'm having a little bit of technical issues, Peter. And uh, so I'm going to ask you a question and have you talk. I'm going to leave the studio and come back in. You're not going to go anywhere. But uh, so let's see if that will make a difference if I reboot or something like that. Sure. So let's, uh, um, I don't want to miss anything. We're going to talk about Wilhelm Reich a little bit. But So I want, I'm trying to think of what, can get you on for a topic that you can speak on for a while. And I know you're very good at speaking about anything. So I guess I'll ask you this. When you go to your conference, uh, what is the type of, uh, your subject that you pick and talk about at a UFO, con uh, UFO conference? Like you said, you did in Texas and one in England and stuff like that. So if you wouldn't mind just addressing a little bit of that, and I'll be right back. Is sure. that all right? All right. Okay. I'll be right back. Well, uh, following on Martin's request, the Edinburgh UFO Festival and Conference, um, again, maybe 20 minutes from the Mexican-American border and a part of America that has been culturally Mexican-Mexican-American for 100, 150 years. And it was a wonderful culture to be immersed in. And I had given them, as I sometimes do when I'm asked to speak, half a dozen, eight different subjects that um, I could lecture on, or if they had something in particular they wanted me to uh, discuss. And they chose what was the most well-known uh, and best documented UFO incident in the history of the Soviet Union um, barring the Tunguska uh, event in 1908, which is still somewhat mysterious. This uh, happened in the Russian city of Vodanos, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, um, in 1989, with the landing of a fully articulated, unidentified flying object, a machine of undetermined origin, in a public park in this city, which is about 300 miles south, southeast of Moscow. And after noontime, as school was getting out, a lot of kid witnesses, a lot of adult witnesses, um, local investigators coming into the area almost immediately and collecting samples, documenting the uh, anomalous changes to the organic material that this incident, so to say, bumped up against. Um, but they had asked me to give the talk in part because it was a younger audience and they wanted it to be something of a history lesson because the event superimposed itself on the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And I ended up corresponding for several years and becoming quite close with a Russian professor, also a ufologist um, in Voronezh, and it made a kind of a unique investigation. Otherwise, the talks that I gave this year were variations on a, a subject that has fascinated me for decades and that I've spoken on occasionally, but I finally came back to and pulled together as a full 
documented presentation. And it's something that's occurred to most people who have some interest in UFOs, but then you move on to other things, which is the ridicule attached to the subject has been ferocious for most of the time since the beginning of the modern age of UFOs in 1947, when we, there are earlier events, but that's when it's officially dated from by most folks. And how it came to pass that almost instantaneously in the summer of 1947, the American public and by extension, the Western world had their brains rewired in a way to respond to somebody simply stating that they had seen something in the sky that was unusual, that they had never seen before, that they didn't recognize, that maneuvered in a manner that they were unfamiliar with, which seems like a perfectly logical thing to be curious about, but to respond not by saying or thinking, gee, that's interesting, I wonder what it was too. But by responding or thinking, what's wrong with this person? Are they uh, mentally ill? Do they want to feel special? Do they think this is going to make them wealthy or famous? Do they uh, have a desire to con me? Is this some kind of hoax? Are they a member of a cult? None of it makes sense at all. And so I really started to dig into it and to try to find the actual mechanisms. And I think I did. And more, I think I'm able in that presentation and the paper that I wrote to trace it down to key individuals within the Truman administration and within the major world of mass media, which at the time was dominated by newspapers. It's 1947. Anyway, um, once I finished my final variation on the presentation in Exeter, that gets filed and move on to other material that I'm developing for my own curiosity and research and for future presentations. Excellent. Well, yes, I'm I'm sorry I couldn't. I mean, I did reboot and it seems much better now and everything seems fine. But um, I thought the days of rebooting computers was over. You know, <laughs> remember we used to have to reboot them all the time. Yeah, even uh, just the word alone sounds so wonderfully dated uh, <laughs> in my ear. Um, yeah, I think just as a footnote, Exeter TV, the local television network in Exeter, New Hampshire, they ran the AV and they filmed all the talks. And I think this week, and I guess it's ExeterTV.com, I'm not sure, they're starting to make them available, the talks by the various presenters. And it was a, a terrific group of presentations, I must say. Yeah, my friend Paul Eno is always there. Was Ben there this year too as well? Yes, yeah. they did their usual radio show live from the event Yeah, with all of the speakers and Q&A and gave a terrific talk together. Once again, as always, they are perennials at this event and much beloved. You know, it's, it's something, you know, you talk about um, COVID and what it's changed and everyone holding back. And same thing, <laughs> I'm on my way to Phoenix later on. Uh, uh, actually doing my second talk on the UFO topic in uh, in Shag Harbor coming up October 1st. Terrific. And uh, in Phoenix, I'm going to help. And my friend Donna and I are both going out there. And it's going to be a lot of fun, like it always is. But 
it's been, uh, was it three years? It's been two years, two years that it was uh, virtual. And right. I think the same thing's going to happen there. I think there's going to be a lot of people coming. And I'm, I, as I mentioned to the last show, uh, that if you're going to be out in Phoenix, uh, please do send me an email at martin at podcastufo.com. And I'm sorry, I haven't responded to the people that wrote last week, but uh, it doesn't mean uh, I'm going to put you all in one area and I'm going to text you all and, and uh, it'll be nice to catch up with people. And I may do a round robin. I'd like to invite people to uh, be in the audience of the round robin as well. But um, I do think that you know, I mean, there's going to be some people wearing masks. I know there's still a problem. It's not like this thing has gone away. There's, you know, I, I had people, I, I was at an estate sale. I had an estate sale last weekend and, you know, there were some people that walked in and not wearing a mask. And the day before the woman was in her car and she said she had COVID and I recognized her. She came in without a mask. So, I mean, it's it, with that type of thing, you know, it, that's just uh, irresponsible. Yeah. Incredibly irresponsible and right. greedy too. Yeah, in a way. Yes. But anyway, I think that for the most part that these conferences, people have, you know, spent a few years and they're, they're dying to get out. And I think uh, they're going to be successful. So it doesn't surprise me at all about the 600 people, but I want to ask you this, did more, were there people at the end? Because that's meaning that they're really interested in their, and I think that there are more people interested than than ever before at this yes. time. Uh, there certainly were, Martin, although always, almost always noticeably less. In this case, mm -hmm. the last presenter finished at five o'clock each day. And that second day, you know, most folks are traveling, many of them by car, uh, in some cases, considerable distances. I, like some of the other speakers, stayed over that final Sunday night because I and a colleague of mine had a, a six or seven hour drive back to uh, the Ithaca, New York area in central New York state. So um, not something you want to start out at, at at six in the evening. But again, mm -hmm. a very successful conference, very well run. And as I understand it, um, we raised more for children's services than we ever have before. And it's Excellent. usually pretty considerable. So we're all very proud of that. Yeah, that's excellent. I'll try to make it next year. <laughs> and I've said that I've been there a few times. The last time I was there, Stanton Friedman was there. And uh, you'll remember that one. And uh, it was so funny. These young girls went around him with aliens, big blow up aliens. They were all excited. He's free. He was friendly to everybody. Uh, it was great. It was great. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit because uh, I did uh, I did some homework yesterday mm. uh, because I wanted to talk about Wilhelm Reich. And his cloud-busting machine, his connection um, to UFOs, I know you did some work on that. And uh, I've always wanted to talk to you about that because it his last place was right in the state of Maine. So my friend and I drove up there yesterday. Yeah. And here's the uh, – that was his home, right? That is uh, – the building is called Organon. Um, right. it, yeah. it was his home, but it was also his laboratory. His observer, his observatory, and his art studio, um, and examination rooms and library. In fact, it was designed in such um, a functional, organic way that every visit I've made there, I, I just am taken aback at how sensible, how really brilliant, in a quiet sort of way, 
the structure is. You move from environment to environment. It's built mostly with these old field stones from the original farmhouse that it replaced on the estate that Reich bought hmm. in the early 1950s when he moved to Maine. And um, it, I should I should say here that I first was introduced to the writings of Wilhelm Reich when I was still a teenager. And the science that he pioneered, which he called organomy, people get caught up on, on words, especially if the content can make them feel uneasy. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, the root word, organism, et cetera. Um, it's Orgasm. The science of, yeah, right? that too. Yeah. The science of how energy functions in the living and the non-living realms. And as a result, in his 45-year or so exploration, as a scientist, as a psychotherapist, as a social historian, uh, as a brilliant observer of the human condition, if you're not aware of the that the thread that runs through everything is about the study of energy, it seems kind of slipshod or helter-skelter. He researched and explored areas as diverse as weather formation, human behavior, cancer formation, um, the raising of healthy children, how galaxies form, how organisms split, um, fascism uh, versus democracy. But it was like a gun sight straight through these areas of study, the last of which he focused on in his last years having to do with the UFO phenomena, fairly recent at that time. But just forewarned, um, there is no way that we can do this subject any real justice here other than kind of looking across the landscape of the work and you know answering whatever specific questions I can. Um, I will say that for people interested in UFOs, um, who study or who read his last book uh, called Contact with Space, it, it can be over-romanticized. And I would say that it's probably the worst book to read first huh. because it's the culmination, again, of 45 years of work, going back to his brilliant years as uh, Freud's first assistant in the later 1920s in Vienna right, and managing to escape well, Hitler literally as the, the doors were closing and then being a refugee in Europe for years until he was invited to speak, uh, to be a, a uh, instructor at the New School for Social Research in New York in 1941 or so. Um, but for me, he was a millennial genius and there is no other philosopher, scientist, social thinker who has had a more profound effect on my thinking and the way that I see the world as it is. Hmm. Um, Contact with Space, for what it's worth, um, was published a month after Reich died in 1957. Uh, it was published posthumously, and only 500 copies were ever printed. So if you have an original copy of it, hold on to it. Um, mm. There are uh, reproductions of the book uh, that are available through the Wilhelm Reich Museum bookstore, which is mm -hmm. easy enough to find online. 
And I, my first 10 years of, of studying his work, um, really the subject of his UFO involvement interested me least of all, because again, I was repressing that memory and that part of his work didn't interest me. And then quite radically it did. And huh? I ended up realizing I was obsessed in a way that was unhealthy with what the hell happened to my sister and what was this phenomena and what was it all about? And I, for the first time in my life, felt I really needed a therapist mm -hmm. and remembered Reich has had an involvement in this subject and quite a remarkable one. And that his first assistant for the last 11 years of his life, I did a little looking into and learned that Dr. Ellsworth F. Baker in his later 70s was alive and well and still practicing in the method that Reich had instructed him in, uh, both in his home office in Red Bank, New Jersey, and in an office that he had had for years on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. And after an initial contact with him, I decided to go into therapy with him and did for almost seven years. And it was one of the smartest and most valuable things I ever did for myself. Mm -hmm. um, I will also say that the Cloudbuster, which along with the Orgone Energy Accumulator, often referred to usually derogatorily as the Orgone Box, it, these are simple laboratory devices, but there that is what remains of the very first Cloudbuster. It doesn't bear much of a resemblance to more modern ones. And the best I can do is tell you that the accumulator, which came first, and one made for a, a person, might be the size of an old-fashioned phone booth, it's basically layers of organic and inorganic material. For example, steel wool and plywood. And the more layers, the more potential it has for capturing and holding energy. Organic material holds energy. Metallic material reflects energy. And they work. You feel a, a genuine uh, difference in the way that you feel. Uh, they can be applied to healing, um, to a better sense of well-being, um, in some cases uh, fighting certain diseases and conditions. The Cloudbuster is simply a series of long metal pipes. And Reich experimented with different metals for some time before hitting on the ones that were optimum that are then attached to hollow industrial level BX cable. We're all familiar with the BX cable that runs through our homes, but a actual working Cloudbuster to uh, address an atmospheric condition uses this larger cable material, very flexible, and they are simply attached at the back of these tubes and the cables themselves, empty of the wiring, are then grounded in running water or a well or a pond. And the water is a natural energetic attractor. And when the pipes are aimed in a certain direction, it draws energy to it in the atmosphere. And in the case of a stagnant atmosphere, as we find in a drought, 
it gets the atmosphere moving again. And what Reich was able to do, and I only wish that there were more people in mainstream science that would at least try to replicate some of these experiments for themselves to see how brilliantly they work. Um, it can break droughts. In fact, the leading um, individual in the world who did more of this work, certainly than Reich or anyone else, uh, Dr. James DeMeo, whose laboratory, uh, yeah, there's a, 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 another variation, uh, whose laboratory was outside of Ashland, Oregon, passed away earlier this year. Jim was an old friend of mine going back to the 70s. And he broke droughts over the years for the French government, the German government, Israel, Eritrea. Uh, it works. But because of the controversy, which is not unlike the controversy surrounding taking UFOs seriously, at least till recently, he always had to sign non-disclosure agreements you know, as far as major publicity of the fact that this technique breaks droughts. Um, Reich was seen by officialdom to a degree at the time uh, of his coming over to the United States as a potential security threat. He was the most virulent anti-communist person you could imagine. But, you know, he was an Eastern European guy and you got to keep an eye on those people and a doctor mm. and, you know, spoke with an accent. So uh, you never know. Uh, mm. But in the FDA at the time, because there is no question that in many cases of people who used um, orgone energy accumulators, orgone being a word for energy, it would be the same as the 19th century the Victorians referring to the ether or Hindu culture referring to the prana, that the orgone energy enhanced uh, one's ability to um, build up tolerance to pleasure, uh, something sadly that our culture is lacking in to a great degree, and experience fuller, more uh, um, pleasurable orgasms, as well as a deeper sense of feeling in general. And so he was immediately labeled a sex quack in the 40s by the FDA, <clears throat> but they were never get, able to get anybody to complain. No patient, uh, no individual that had ever worked with him or had ever used any of the medical equipment that working from his schematics or that was produced by uh, his, his laboratory um, ever had an issue with it ever. But then the FDA was able to push through legislation to um, at least halt interstate shipping as experimental medical devices, which is certainly fine. Unfortunately, one of his physicians completely forgot and on a certain order shipped panels for an accumulator from Rangeley, Maine to New York State, and they had him on a technicality. And Reich, who was brilliant, but in some ways idealistic in a way that did not serve him, decided that if he was going to trial, he would use it as an opportunity to prove the viability and the reality of the science that he had developed. And the judge would have none of it. He lost the case hmm. and was um, sentenced to a year in prison in um, where he died, right? 
Yes. Uh, Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania, where he was found dead in his cell about a week before he was scheduled for parole release. Um, and don't, it's so uh, easy to understand some folks jumping to the conclusion, myself uh, as well originally, uh, that this might have been some foul play. It might have been. But he, being imprisoned with a life dedicated to literally to freedom and nature and natural functioning, that had to be crushing to him. Plus, he was a chain smoker, shot a whiskey at night, uh, heavy European diet, type A character, high blood pressure. You know, um, mm -hmm. you don't need to look too far for conspiracy. Again, I will say I have used these devices and they work more as far as a cloud buster goes. For 10 years um, from my late 20s into my later 30s, I was reading this material. Well, actually starting when I was 19. Uh, voraciously. And I understood and accepted the principles, the energetic principles that the cloud buster operated under. But it's one thing to accept something intellectually and another thing to actually experience it or see it in action. And on a very memorable day in probably in the later 70s, a number of us who had worked as fundraisers who went on to become the American College of Organomy in Princeton, New Jersey, which I have not had any association with for many years, but was proud to help put into effect. Um, a local farmer who um, was a friend of the college allowed his property to be used for demonstration. And one of the best trained cloud busters ever, uh, a man who I still stay in touch with who lives out in Oregon now, um, did a demonstration. It was trailer mounted on a uh, behind a, a pickup truck. Um, it had it was operated from a cable drive with a long electrical wire. It when it's operating can it can put out a somewhat toxic field enough to make you not feel good, hmm. and in extreme cases to um, give you a really bad sore throat or a headache or whatever. And um, it was very methodical. This is not, it was not, again, an operation to affect a major change in the weather in the area. But I'll tell you, Martin, it, it's indelible in my mind. At one point, starting out, uh, John said, that cloud bank over there, over the next 10 minutes or so, I am going to remove and then I'm going to create a cloud bank over here where there is none. Now I'm going to cut this cloud in half. And within maybe two minutes of drawing on it, not only did he do it, but if, the, if this cloud buster had 10 pipes, I don't remember, we watched in complete awe as before it split in half, you could make out 10 rough jagged holes for several moments and then dissipating and then two parts uh, and so on. It was um, something wow. I will never forget. And on the other side of it, to manufacture one of these things can be deceptively simple, but to operate it responsibly, if you, you know, or want to just show off and, uh, 
create some movement in the atmosphere, so to say, you can create damaging conditions. And I, well, I got to tell. I'd like to tell you a story if I could, real quickly, uh, that had to do with this. And so when I was in my twenties, uh, I'm trying to remember, kind of early twenties. I was a uh, park ranger in California in the San Diego area. Lower Otay Lake was the name of the park, and cool. so I had to I had to do a talk, um, and and walk people over to the dam. And back in Oh, God, it seems like it was 1913. Oh, by the way, I have a picture of myself as a ranger. Now, don't laugh too hard. I won't. Yeah, okay, because it's pretty funny. Uh, I can't speak to that by the rest of your audience. So. I have a, a tarantula on me, that a pet tarantula. Here it is right here. Yes. <laughs> so that's me in my 20s. I'm at Fabulous. the park, and I'm, I'm giving this talk on on the dam and, and all that, and the... The amazing thing is that they had a drought, a really bad drought, and they called a cloudbuster, and that the the town or something was going to pay him something like five thousand, big money for back then, like five thousand dollars. He did the cloudbuster. It rained so hard the dam burst, and it killed like one hundred and twenty farmers down down river below the dam. What? So they, of course, didn't pay him. But that 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 is a true story, and I used to tell it when I used to t tour people. Um, out oh, yeah, I never the heard that. Yeah, That's Lower Otai. If you could uh, look at it, yeah, and it was it wasn't. I know that this was pre uh, Wilhelm Reich, but um, I, it was some type of cloud thing that he supposedly shot up in the atmosphere what, and, what, what, we're talking about when you say pre-wilhelm reich yeah this was he, this was uh in like 1913 or 15 or you know what i'm then, going to do peter we'll talk offline and i'll get all the information because i used to do the talk but it, you, you know, know that was I, so many, I, that was 40 years I, ago you know <laughs> <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, no one had developed this technology back then. So it wasn't called a cloudbuster, but it was something else. And it was something shot up into the atmosphere. And I will get well, to nothing, that. Nothing is shot up into the atmosphere with a cloudbuster. Yeah, it's simply it's a total different thing. But still, it was it was quite a story I used to have to tell. And uh, I'll, I'll look into that and get the details. But I know this is way off the UFO subject. I hope people are still enjoying it. But didn't he? aim the didn't he think that he could send the signals out to the ufos or something well, like that there's no signals involved in that um or the energy we're just focusing yeah. energy and it wasn't that he thought that he could he did and he it did. was multiply observed and documented repeatedly in maine as well as the following year in, near tucson where they had leased a space to use the cloudbuster specifically in one of the driest parts of the United States so that if they produced the results they were after, which they did, they broke every weather record in the history of Arizona, it would it would be less in dispute. But um, yes, he did. And each time that he aimed the cloudbuster at a UFO, it either dimmed or wobbled or moved or disappeared. Wow. That that is something else. So there there could be something now. Someone you said is very simplistic to create. Was there ever a, a pat a patent on it that someone could reproduce something? No, 
No, he did not take out a patent on the Cloudbuster or the uh, Oregon Energy Accumulator. And with simple schematics, anybody can reproduce it. I would say if you have any interest in at least learning about it responsibly, the best book available ever published is the late Dr. James DeMeo's Orgone Energy Accumulator book. Um, and I think that's available from the Orgone Biophysical Orgone Biophysical Research Laboratory in Ashland, Maine, or just remember OBRL, mm. uh, a huge archive and very well documented. Yeah. So this this kind of reminds me a little bit of Tesla. I was talking to my friend Donna today and, you know, she brought that up. It's kind of like, you know, um, so another controversial, you know, I mean, Tesla's papers, whatever happened to them, you know, right after he died. Um, what did they ascend on his property when he when he died? They, they ascended on his property while he was alive uh, and confiscated um, in the Eisenhower administration between, I think, 56 and 1960, a few months before Kennedy was inaugurated, something like eight tons of original literature, hardcover books, medical journals if they had even a reference to the term orgone energy, because the FDA had decided and declared that there was no such thing. Therefore, this was some kind of fraud. And his books were burned by the ton oh. by the United States government. And crazy, it's a dark moment um, in scientific history and one that most people have no awareness of at all. So... Um, as far as Tesla goes, he died at the New Yorker Hotel in 1942, yep. followed being hit by a car. Um, and most smart money says it was the FBI that got into his room and cleaned out the safe. Uh, I will say as a footnote, I know from my father, who uh, used to delight in sharing with me and occasionally other people, that... I was conceived in the Hotel New Yorker <laughs> while he was AWOL, which means there's probably one chance in 300 or so, yes, that I was conceived in the room that Nicola Desla <laughs> was passed away in. I'll it, leave it at that. It makes, yeah, I, that makes total sense, Peter. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. No. I stayed there one night, and you know what I f fell asleep thinking. Could this be the room? But, yeah. you know, you don't want to think about it too hard. Yeah, yeah. No, didn't he live in, he lived in a fairly big, like a not a penthouse or anything like that, but a, but a pretty sizable suite, uh, wasn't it? I have but, no idea, but yeah. George Westinghouse could afford it. And George Westinghouse essentially robbed him of about a billion dollars. Oh, in absolutely. So much and, per horsepower of every electric motor that was ever produced. Uh, I don't even know. It'd be in the trillions by now. <laughs> Probably. You know, yeah. He, you know, Tesla was a millennial genius of a different sort and at the same time somewhat naive and idealistic. And uh, what Westinghouse put to him in the earlier 1900s was with your discoveries and a little thing I've created called General Electric, we can transform the world in a good way. But 
I'll go broke if you keep me, you know, to our original agreement. So can I just pay you a million dollars and we'll call it even? Uh -huh. That's uh, right up there with buying Manhattan Island for $24 in beads, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Yeah, yeah. That's something else. We have uh, just, uh, I think we're just about out of time, Peter. I'm, this show went so fast with you. And I'd like to have you on sooner than later again. And we'll talk about glad um, other subjects. But right now, it's uh, time for me to run yeah. this beautiful uh, video showing this yeah. uh, poem uh, dedicated to 9-11, which was just a couple of days ago. And uh, and one thing he did was uh, he always posted this on his his uh, Facebook site um, every year at this time, you know, 9-11. So this, again, is a tribute to a great man, Lee McDonald. And here he is with his poem right here. And we'll be back next week, everyone, with Ben Hurl. And thank you so much. And what what was it that he wanted me to say stare up in the air or something like that. But I'll say, I, I would say it right for Lee if I could. And here we go. went out his thunderous plea I am thy Lord beseeching my horde to assemble in front of me in a flash the angels did dash to gather at his feet and hear his plan to help all man by use of heaven's elite the devils made a play this September day to hurt the ones I love he's loosed upon earth his demonic worth now push has come to shove I'll not stand by and have good men die without awareness in their heart. So this day, in my planful way, a battle I'm going to start. Gabriel, old friend, to this end welcome every woman and man that'll come our way this fateful day who died by Satan's hand. And before you go, you need to know a few you'll bring straight to me. Firefighters all, now standing tall, known as the 343. With Gabriel gone and quiet the throng, they wondered at his plan to send and quell the flames of hell by use of mortal man. All manner of doubt filled the strongest and stout of heaven's holy array, and fear fell upon the heavenly throng at the plan the Lord set this day. I can sense in thy heart's hesitation to start, a battle you don't understand, but confused as you, Satan is too, and that is the heart of my plan. Fear ye not for what I've wrought, I'll ask none here to face his fork, but I'll send into hell those who fell, the firefighters from New York, and the Lord raised his staff and began to laugh in roaring thunderous glee. Then in a blaze they stepped from a haze, 
the Angelic 343. They fell into line in very short time, making perfect formations of rows, and the Lord caused a slip on every man's hip, a golden heavenly hose. The gravest mistake Satan did make when he struck down these men so brave, thinking idol I'd stand, not extending my hand, and their souls I would not save. Have no fear for the men standing here, the way to his place they know well. For verily, each day they've collected their pay by stepping into hell. These men know their task, now angels I ask, that you hasten straight to earth and comfort their friends when the tally begins and they start to question their worth. Console them with wings and all heavenly things. On their shoulder your head is to rest. Send whispers of thanks from our heavenly ranks, say, God knows. You did your best.